Have you got something you'd like to do that's been sitting in your head for ages but never made it past the idea stage? Or would you like to change your role, your career or even fix a difficult relationship? Perhaps you'd just like to take up something new and exciting but something's stopping you. If you're like most doctors and other professionals in high-stress jobs that I know, you'll tell me that you just don't have the time. But perhaps you secretly know that a lack of time is just masking other reasons for why you haven't even tried to start. Robbie Swale, author and coach, has cracked it. He's managed to write several books and change his life in just 12 minutes per week. Yes, you heard right. Not per day, but per week. And if you don't have 12 minutes a week to spare, then you're probably a very, very, very important person and almost certainly don't have time to listen to this podcast. In this episode... Robbie explains how the 12-minute project came about and why it's so helpful in getting us over the hump of starting things, such as new projects, career changes, creative stuff, or even new business ideas, which can seem overwhelming at first. I found this conversation incredibly encouraging and motivating, and I'm going to try doing something next week, which I've been putting off starting for ages. So listen to this episode to find out what really stops us from trying out new ideas or starting stuff. The surefire way to never achieve what you want, spoiler alert, it's something to do with never starting in the first place and how much you can really achieve in just 12 minutes per week. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, the podcast for doctors and other busy professionals in high-stress, high-stakes jobs. I'm Dr Rachel Morris, a former GP, now working as a coach, trainer and speaker. Like frogs in a pan of slowly boiling water, many of us don't notice how bad the stress and exhaustion have become until it's too late. But you are not a frog. Burning out or getting out are not your only options. In this podcast, I'll be talking to friends, colleagues and experts and inviting you to make a deliberate choice about how you will live and work so that you can beat stress and work happier. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours. Then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash get your life back. Hi, Rachel. Uh, I'm Robbie Swale um, and I'm a leadership coach, an author and a podcaster and a, and a big part of my work in the last year or so has been on the 12 minute method series of books. It's wonderful to have you on the podcast, Robbie. And I wanted to get you on because I think you've got a really interesting take on why ideas don't happen and why ideas do happen. Tell tell me a bit about how you got into sort of coaching and uh, developing an interest around those sorts of ideas. In some ways, I came to coaching because I wanted to be doing work that was using all the skills I had. And I wanted to find something that I was so interested in it that I would read about it outside work. I had a bunch of different jobs in the first decade or so of my career. The closest I got before before coaching to finding something that that did 
ticked all the boxes for me was I worked in arts and culture, uh, managing arts centers. But then I realized that I'd stopped thinking and enjoying learning about arts and culture outside of work. And I was like, this is no longer that thing for me. But coaching could be, perhaps, and that's how I, I came to it. And and one of the reasons it is is because I do get really interested in these kinds of challenges, like your, the one you're talking about. Like, why had I had an amazing idea for a book and let myself get talked out of it? I had these amazing, two two amazing stories, actually. Like, they're a bit, now that I've done some things that I'm really proud of, I can kind of let go of the pain of these a bit. But I'd had a couple of these in, in my late 20s. I'd had a book that I was thought was like an amazing idea for a book. And I could show you emails plotting out this 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 book in a lot of detail with a friend of mine over email. And then we basically let ourselves get talked. I let myself get talked out of it by a friend of that friend who said to my friend, I just don't think it's a very good idea. I wouldn't read it. And that was enough for me to just like let it go. Now, the reason this is important, Rachel, is because somebody else wrote the book. Oh. Like, in fact, worse still, because it was about a computer game that I, I had played loads of when I was a teenager. Like, worse still, one of my friends gave me this book. It was, I got to say, it was like a, a horrible heart sinking moment when I was like, and I still haven't read it. I've still got it somewhere, but <laughs> for, I could read it now. But for a long time, I just couldn't even look at it without having this sick feeling because I'd had the idea and my life would have taken, like, I'm happy with my life. So I, I wouldn't want it to, to go down that other way. But isn't that interesting? And mm. another one happened almost exactly the same. I had this business idea. I Googled it and I kind of let myself not do it because there was a kind of someone had like about one third done the idea that I had. I found it and they, they hadn't at first Then I didn't do it for a while. Then I looked it up again and it was kind of one third there or something like that. Not done very well, not done quite how I'd imagined it, but it was there. So I didn't do it. And then I kind of every now and again would think about it going like, that would have been cool. What if I'd had that business? That would be interesting. And then my friend Petia was like, do you know, I, th- I can't remember the name of the guy now. I think you should meet my friend Adam. And Adam, it turned out, ran a much better version of the business that I'd like, not a one third version, but a, a full version. And I just like, I think that's so interesting. So what was it that, that stopped me with those things? What was it that meant that the people who did write that book and, and start that business did those things? And, you know, then as time went on, I started to see it in my coaching. And in a one way, coaching is is just that, that challenge. Most people who come to coaching, it's like, I have a thing I want to do, whether it's a personal habit or a business idea or um, a, a change they wanted to put in, into place in their organization. I, I don't quite know how to do it or I'm not doing it yet. Can you help me in some way? And so I started to see more and more about that as as time went on. That's really interesting because, yeah, when I think about everyone who comes to me for coaching and uh, the other clients we work with, it is that it's always that people want to make a change, but they're stuck and they don't know how. I mean, sometimes I guess they don't know what the changes that, that they want to make, but not so much. It's generally because there are a few barriers that when you really look at it, aren't that hard to overcome. It just needs a bit of support, a bit of thinking through, a bit of maybe creative thinking. So that's really interesting. I mean, oh, that you must have been so gutted when you saw the book and when you saw that business, hey? <laughs> I mean, people who are listening can't see my face. Like these days, Rachel, I genuinely don't have the sinking feeling anymore. But for a long time, I couldn't have it on a bookshelf, really. And, um, you know, I think this is really important because I think in a way what's shifted for me about that, that, that feeling gutted is, so I sometimes think of it as, now I use the word creative because I have done work on myself to reabsorb that the word creative is okay for me to use. Uh, lots of us have stories that like creativity isn't really us or it means something very particular about uh, you know, painting or something. <laughs> I've like 
found the ways to be creative and get things done. So for a long time, the gutted feeling was was not just about the book, but was the book as a symbol for all the things that I had wanted to do and for whatever reason, not done, not felt able to do. And, and so it had that feeling that I sometimes think of as creative hell, you know, which can be anything from wishing I'd written the book and seeing someone else had done it to, you know, the feeling people get when they really want to sing at karaoke, but are too embarrassed or really want to ask someone out, but for some reason haven't done it for weeks or months or years. In a second, I'd love to know some of the other reasons why people get stuck. But I am really fascinated about that that business when you thought, oh, I'd really love to do that. And then you look, but because someone had already done it a little bit, it just put you off. It reminds me, I was listening to a podcast by Pat Flynn, I think it's called, a Smart Passive Income or something like that. And uh, he was answering a question. I think I've shared this on the podcast before, but someone had written into him and said, Pat, why does everything you do turn to gold? And <laughs> I, I thought, oh, here we go. Actually, he gave such a good answer. He said, you know, everything I do does turn to gold, but that's because when I look at something to do, I will never do it if nobody else has done it before. He says, I'll always choose things where somebody's really successful in that realm or somebody's done it before because then I know that it works. And that just reminded me, that story, you looked at that business that wasn't even successful and went, someone's done it before, therefore I can't do it. Whereas it's almost the opposite. Someone's had that idea, therefore it must be a good idea. Therefore I do it. And I think for a lot of doctors listening to this, often they don't do stuff because they're intimidated by other people working in the same space or other people who might be better than them or more experienced than, than them. And I think that is a really major blocker for, for doctors. Have you found that is a blocker for other people? Yeah, I mean, we can look at it if we if we kind of zoom out. It's, it's especially exacerbated by the internet, right? Because mm. um, <laughs> Because it used to be that, you know, if I'd, it, it, let's, let's like rewind even just like the late 90s, right? If I'd had a business idea then that um, I could conceivably have done, really, I would need to look around the geographical local area that I lived in. And I always think it's weird how in towns you get all the like similar shops next to each other. You know, it's like there's obviously space for three um, shoe shops in a town or in a, in a city of a certain size. And they're usually sat like literally on the same street because actually for customers, that's that's convenient. You want as a customer to have a choice about which shoe shop you go in. And yet for some reason, as, a, as an individual human, especially in the internet age, we see things quite differently. And the problem on the internet is you're not just looking for like, like it, I guess even with three shoe shops, there's a sense like, well, actually if I back myself, I could be, the best of the three shoe shops. Like that's literally a possible thing for me to be. On the internet, it looks really different to that because it's basically impossible for me to be the best thing at anything on the internet because there's always going to be somebody out there, Pat Flynn being a good example, who's done you know online business in a way that I'll just never do it as well. And basically anywhere you look about anything, you'll find somebody who's doing exactly what you're thinking of doing, but they're a bit ahead of you or a bit um, smarter or a bit more attractive or a bit, uh, I don't know, younger or older, whichever one intimidates you more. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a real, it's a real challenge. And, and the thing that I think is going on underneath that often, if you think about me, in the situation with the business is that really some part of us is looking for an excuse not to do the scary thing and a good excuse is someone's already done it and then you hear that thing that you just shared from Pat Flynn and even like even though I say it's not it's not painful anymore I just got this real flash of like I just wish someone had said that to me when I was 25 
because that would have made a real difference to me. I think that's that's really important for people. Firstly, don't let the don't let the fact that there are other people doing it because you'll bring your your own thing to it. But I'm interested that you say that your brain is sort of looking for an excuse not to do it. I mean, I have lost count of the people when I was thinking of starting the podcast. I didn't get a lot of encouragement. It has to be said, even to the you're even calling it that? Are you calling it that? Really? <laughs> and then, you know, people have now said that to me that they really like the name. I mean, obviously, there's some people that really hate things about frogs or whatever, but but people have, have <laughs> enjoy it, etc. I don't know. But anyway, I could have been very, very easily put off doing it. So I was why weren't say, you, do you think? Hmm, why wasn't I? That's a really good question. Um, I guess I just wanted to see how it could be done. I think uh, probably I, I suggested it to a couple of people who were encouraging. So for everyone who wasn't encouraging, there are a few people that were encouraging and I could see it made it made sense. And also it was it was fairly risk-free. You know, if you start a yeah. podcast and no one listens, you can just stop your podcast, right? So it wasn't a <laughs> it wasn't a big a big life decision. Um, whereas a lot of time things do feel like big life decisions but maybe that's one of the problems actually we, we think too big rather than thinking small yeah it, I think it definitely can be I think lots of good ideas get kind of lost in um, the overwhelm at the size of the project or an attachment to a particular long-term outcome from a project I think that's that's really true in what I've seen I also think it's like what you've said is just I just know because I know because it's you know it's the story of that book that I just told but it's the story of so many ideas like that I just know that those often caring dis what do you call it what's the opposite of encouragement disencouragement I don't know if that's a word disencouraging voices you know they just kill so many ideas and that's such a shame and I'm so glad that from where I am um, it looks like you've you've made something really special here, and I'm really glad that you've done that. I think it is something we have to be aware of. If we're gonna, if people are gonna set out to do something that matters, you've kind of got to prepare for the being a group of people who you would wish would support you, who might just say disencouraging things. It's useful to to know that up front. It's really useful that you kind of raised it now for people are listening because it's useful to know that up front because then you can kind of prep yourself for it, and you can either surround yourself by some people who will be encouraging like build a community for that is a really like smart idea or, or you can just armor yourself up just know that you're going to have to let go of five or ten of those things and and that the thing you're making probably wasn't for those people anyway and also if you start off by just knowing your why you know you know why you're going to do it because of this you've got some good reasons you've you've thought it through you're fairly happy with that then actually when people do come back at you going oh it doesn't sound like a good idea to me then that's absolutely fine. And I think we just do p- take people's comments as gospel, don't we? A certain person in my life uh, automatically goes to the critical element, but that's just the way they're built. Uh, they have a certain personality profile, which makes them actually really, really very useful in a business because they can spot holes and spot problems. So when I've gone, oh, I've had this idea, the first thing I'll get from them is, oh, mm, that's not, not, you know, it's sort of all the problems and all the reasons why it won't work. And And I have been in a situation where I've, pitched an idea got some negative feedback and then a few months later that that person has said to me oh but what about that thing you were going to do I'm like but you said it was rubbish I did <laughs> no I didn't I just know yeah. and I'm like oh but I'd really taken that person's word as gospel when actually you just need to trust a lot of the time your your own intuition right rather than just thinking with you're in a chimp yeah I, I love that and if you do feel solid enough 
like you said, maybe from knowing the why, from whatever whatever it is that you as a person need to feel solid, then that criticism is really useful. Like sometimes mm-hmm. the criticism is is difficult. It's always most difficult when we, we partially believe it ourselves yeah. or we're not sure about the thing. And so one way to respond to the criticism is to really rumble with it, sit down with it. You don't have to do it with the other person there because that can be like, I don't know, I always freeze in the light of, in the face of criticism. So I probably need time by myself to do that kind of thing. But other people can do it in the moment with the person. It's like, what would we need to do with this idea to, to, to strengthen it so that, that criticism wasn't valid? Like, that's a really useful thing to have. I guess I'm really aware that in the early stages of an idea, it, sometimes it can be really fragile. Uh, or we can be really fragile about it. Like you say, we take that that criticism as gospel truth. We kind of really believe it, even though it's just somebody's opinion. And, and we're in the, the night before when we had the idea and we thought it's fantastic. We had a different opinion, but we forget that when we're faced with somebody else's. So I'm always like uh, protective of people at those early stages because I think that mm. sometimes the idea is most fragile then. And once we've solidified it, once it's, once it's going, it, it can often feel really different. But uh, yeah, the criticism can be really difficult. Mm. Maybe like you say, it's fragile. And so you maybe need to be quite careful about who you share it with and in, in what context you share it and don't just spring it on people, but maybe even catch with, you know, I've been thinking a lot and I've been writing it down. I've done some investigations. I think often we throw out our idea far too early uh, before we've even prepped other people and we just get their initial reaction or, or a silly reaction. Whereas if they'd have really thought it through, they, they, they probably would give us a more considered reaction and a more encouraging reaction. I think one blocker I find with with doctors and lots of people in healthcare and people who are really really busy is they desperately want to change they desperately want to do something but they're so busy they don't have any time to do it and in their minds creating lasting change trying a new idea doing something different takes an awful lot of time now I know you've cracked this which is why I'm asking (laughs) you (laughs) how do we get over that it's so funny I'm still wary of um I've cracked it uh because you know, these things are complex on one level and the challenges that anyone face is really different. So there's a few ideas that I think are really important here. So one is I've got really obsessed with the tortoise and the hare recently, the, the Aesop fable. And I think that we're, we massively overvalue the hare in society, despite the fact that the hare loses the race in Aesop's fable and the tortoise wins. And there isn't nearly enough um, mythologizing of the great tortoises um, of our ages and our workplaces and that kind of thing. And one of the reasons I think that's important is this quote that the idea basically being that humans tend to overestimate what we can achieve in short times. So that's why we write a to-do list that we never finish for a day, but we underestimate what we can achieve in long time periods. And I think the reason we underestimate what we can achieve in long time periods is because of the power of the tortoise, right? The power of steadiness or small repeated action over a long time. So, I think this is particularly relevant for people who are super busy and under huge amounts of pressure from conflicting demands um, and agendas and all these kind of things, like many people who work in in healthcare. And so for me, though, this really came about from some work I did with my coach, kind of accidentally. One of the parts of the creative process, when you're going to have an idea, right? In a way, it's the one we've been talking about. It's the point where you share the idea with other people. Um, now that can be when you share the, literally the idea, like we've been talking about, or it can be the end of the process. You've made the thing, whatever the thing is, and then you launch it in some way. And I was really, I, that was an agonizing process for me. Like the vulnerability of sharing the idea at the time, it was even like making jokes on Facebook. Um, like it was like an agonizing thing that I would like write the joke and then I would delete it and rewrite it and all this kind of 
strange behavior really looking back, but it felt really important. And I was starting out my business and I knew that, well, I knew that it wasn't really sustainable to have this challenge with sharing things that I'd made or launching things, but also I just didn't want something like that to feel so agonizing. And my coach and I designed a practice, which was at first to help me kind of play with this, which was I got the train to Waterloo three days a week to, to an office job that I had running alongside my coaching business. And the plan was going to be, I would get on the train at Clapham Junction and and five times in the next two weeks, I would write an article while the train was moving, stop when it stopped, proofread it once and post it online. That was the practice. And then I would be able to write at the bottom of it to help me with my sharing thing and the, and the anxiety. I could write at the bottom of it. This was written on the train. So essentially a lot of my fear was um, people will laugh at me. People will say it's terrible writing. You know, um, people will tell me I'm wrong. Like these are the kind of things that I was really worried about. And with that at the bottom, it, it took the pressure off that a little bit. Because if someone said one of those, well, I wrote it on the train, you know, so who cares? Um, so it gave me that little bit of separation. My memory is of those five that it wasn't fun to do those things. It wasn't like nice. There was elements of the agonizingness about it. But it was kind of, I could tell it was good. It's a bit like like exercise, you know, when you like don't really don't want to do exercise. It doesn't feel fun to do it. Sometimes it's really boring. But after it, you can kind of feel that it was good for you. Um. So I decided to make it into a weekly practice after that. And I've now been writing an article in that way for six and a half years every week. So this is essentially where the 12-minute method came from. At some point, I stopped getting the train as much and checked how long it lasted. And that day, it lasted 12 minutes. So I often, these days, I write an article with a timer, write while the timer's going, stop when it stops, proofread it once, post it online. But, but for the context of this conversation, it got interesting about three years in because the marketing expert, the author, Seth Godin, had just like taken a load of his blogs from the last like X years and put them in a book. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting idea. And I was posting these blogs on LinkedIn, essentially because I thought no one read LinkedIn. And so it was the safest place for me to, um, to put them. And LinkedIn is, I don't know if anyone's noticed, but it's hard, quite hard for me to find my own blogs on LinkedIn, let alone for somebody else. Uh, my blogs are all on my website, by the way, now as well. So people do want to find them. But um, I thought, well, if somebody did want to read all those first three years of these articles, like it'd actually be really hard. So maybe I should make a book of it. I thought it'd be funny because I could call it, I wrote this book in 12 minutes. And I got all these articles together. And over three years, 12 minutes at a time, I'd written 80,000 words. I get it. You'll push for time. And with over 200 episodes, how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work? Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole, and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops, top five episodes, sorry, and leap into your happiest thriving self again. Just go to youarenotafrog.com slash quiz. So this is the tortoise over the hare. We underestimate what we can achieve in a long period of time by small repeated action. And, you know, on one level, Rachel, it's completely obvious that every book ever written was written by sitting down essentially for 12 minutes at a time. It's just sometimes it was 40 minutes or six weeks or whatever it is, right? All amounts of time can be divided by 12. And yet I didn't really know that if I sat down for just 12 minutes a week, for three years, I would end up with 80,000 words. What was interesting is I sat down with a friend of mine who's an editor who said, that's a great title, Robbie. 
I wrote this book in 12 minutes because it makes me think if Robbie wrote a book in 12 minutes, I should better bloody well get on with the things that I've been saying I want to do. Um, but can the book itself help with that? And this is where it got really interesting because I sat down with my coach at the time and plotted out what it takes to get an idea done into four stages. And then I sat down with these 130 odd articles from those first three years and I dealt them out and they pretty much went. So it's like, I hadn't just written 80,000 words about anything. I'd actually accidentally written 80,000 words about something, which makes retrospectively total sense looking back. Cause I, if you're writing with a timer, like you don't really have time to think about what you're writing about. So I'd written about what I was wrestling with in my life, which is the building a business, sharing my work with this kind of thing. And, and it's, I was coaching, right? So I was working with other people on that kind of thing. And, and that's where in the end the book became four. And that's where my series of books came from. But there are so many things that this 12 minute practice has taught me. One of them is that this is one of the pieces of feedback from one of the first people who took the idea and made it their own. And, and she was doing her thing in 20 minutes at a time, not 12, because 12 is like an arbitrary number. It doesn't have to be that. And she said, I just couldn't believe how much I got done in that 20 minutes. It was so much more than I thought I would. And with some practice, even in writing, that's been true for me. So, I, you know, I've, I've got much better at writing in 12 minutes than I than I was six, six and a half years ago. But I'm still surprised how much of an idea I can convey in a short article when I would think it would take a much longer piece of writing. Um, and of course, if you do something, there are so many benefits to doing something over a long period of time in this way. You get to learn repeatedly each time, right? You get feedback and reflection time between each thing. So I think there's lots of strong arguments. Sometimes doing stuff slowly over a long period is actually better than doing stuff fast. But at the very least, it's really important. The message I would want everyone to take away from this is don't forget the kind of obvious truth that I didn't know until I did it for six years, which is that if you do something, a small amount over a long period, and you keep doing it on a regular basis, after a long time, you can end up with something kind of unexpectedly magical. And that's so wise. We do know that intuitively, don't we? But we're so conditioned to want quick results very very fast and I guess traditionally you know when I think about medical school you know that's five or six years of intensive study and then you emerge being a doctor at the end of it so you then get into this mindset of the only way you can actually learn anything or or do anything you've got to do it full-time you've got to put everything into it and but that's not actually how life works I mean I have been surprised I've talked about this on the podcast before I've been learning to ice skate the last couple of years and I never really practiced but just 30 minutes a week means that I can you now do some stuff, although I broke my ankle ice skating a few months ago. But I think we have this all or nothing mindset and we, we forget the power of just really, really small amounts of things. I'm interested, Robbie, does this apply to other things? Because I can, I can see how this works with writing, totally. But what about if you want a career change? Or what about if you've got a difficult relationship that needs sorting out or, or there's something different that isn't writing? The thing you've just said about ice skating is actually really important. And this kind of all or nothing mentality we have about these things is really pervasive. Like my brother-in-law has been taking my nephew swimming and my brother-in-law realized he's not a very good swimmer. And, and then he realized after going swimming just a few weeks in a row that he'd probably like done more swimming in those weeks, even though he wasn't learning very effectively or, or paying much attention to it than he had done in the previous, like, I don't know, 20 years of his life or something like that since school enforced swimming lessons on him. So no wonder he was getting better at it. And it's one of the other really important lessons of the more recent parts of my life that I wish I'd known a bit more 
um, in earlier parts, a lot of the time we're massively over-indexing what is talent versus what is practice. <laughs> Sometimes when people look talented, what they've done is they've just practiced it a lot more than most people have. And so don't underestimate the power of practice. So a difficult relationship, if we have an example, we could play with it and see what that might be. So... For a difficult relationship, what about if you're a partner and then there's one of the, the partners at work that you just find really, really difficult? You, you clash a lot and in meetings you're often sort of at odds and there's a bit of bad blood built up, but you both want to stay in the partnership. You've got to work together for another 10, 15 years. The kind of top level thing I would say is like, how much time are you spending thinking about how are you going to practice being better in that relationship? having a more successful relationship? At the very least, like I'd be curious to find out with that person, what would happen if they spent 15 minutes a week for the next three months where they just sat down and for that for that 15 minutes could design the questions, but the questions could be, what can I do this week to try and improve that relationship? And then you just ask yourself, and what else? And what else? And what else? And keep, keep asking that. And then at the end of the 15 minutes, when the last two minutes of it, choose one thing to try that week and see what happens. Like I, I definitely had an idea that relationships were like fixed things, whether it's intimate relationships or like I had this idea that I was, I either was or was not talented at relationships. And I'm so very, very glad that I learned that that was total nonsense. Um, and that there are absolutely massively learnable skills that would help me, you know, for example, in my marriage, but also in difficult business relationships. Another way to think about it would be, you know, if you've got that difficult relationship, are you learning about how to have difficult conversations with business colleagues, like so that you can get better at it. You could take 15 minutes a week. Like a, a great thing to do slowly is reading nonfiction. It's a really great way to read a book because it means you've got six months marinating in the ideas of that person. Well, if you've got a difficult relationship with a partner and you're going to have to be in that relationship for the next 10 years, now would be a really good time to invest in learning as much as you can about how to have relationships with speech marks, difficult people. And there's lots of good books on that. Yeah. And I was thinking, you know, even if you maybe put yourself a, a target to spend five minutes chatting to that person every week, right? Yeah. The, Over the exactly, next three years, what would happen? Exactly. Imagine if you spent, yeah, you spent five minutes and your intention for that five minutes of chat is to learn something new about this person mm -hmm. or to, can you have a 15 minutes non-working coffee with that person once a fortnight? Mm -hmm. And if you can do that, I suspect, like you said, that the things would be really different. Yeah. And what about if you're trying to sort of change careers or job craft or or do something different? Because I think it, it's quite easy to picture when you're trying to develop a business or develop an idea or something tangible you've got in front of you. But if it's about maybe uh, getting that different particular role in a hospital trust or developing a special interest here or there, how would you be advising people to to do that in 12 minutes a week. So earlier this year, Rachel, I, I created a kind of second podcast. I have a podcast for coaches, but I created a second one around the 12 minute method. And I wanted to make it an investigation. And what I was interested in was, what can I learn about the patterns from my life when I've wanted to do something, not done it for a long time, and then finally done it. And I was just about to record the first episode of this. I was going to take them chronologically in my life when I realized that the first time I'd done that was, was changing career. And I was like, what happened there? And what were the lessons that I learned? I think this is like one of the one of the 12 minute method lessons for me is one of the reasons we don't do the things we want to do is because they feel hugely overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Now, it depends on exactly the move you're talking about in a career change, but especially if it's a big move, it's going from one career, perhaps that you've trained for for a long time. Then there's this, yeah, this, this move to something new. There's a lot happening there. There's identity shift, but also there's like, well, how do I even know where to start? 
I was very lucky to have read some articles. I think, and in there were some really important ideas. And, and for me, one of them is, it may not take 12 minutes, right? But it is to break things down into low risk, low cost experiments. You probably don't know exactly how it's going to turn out. And you can't know that at the start. And this is always the case with these big projects. You can't know it with the difficult partner either, right? You can't know that what you're going to do is going to improve that relationship. But you can be pretty sure that if you do nothing, it's not going to improve very much. And if you do something, at least you've done something. And maybe you've learned about how to deal with difficult relationships. So that the next time there's a partner, when this one moves on in 10 years, and you get so it turns out there's somebody else who's difficult, you've got some more skills to deal with that. So we can't know how the career change is going to end up for for sure, but you have some ideas now. And the idea basically in the lean career change was you've got some ideas about what it might be next somehow. And we could talk about how to find some of those ideas. What's the lowest cost, lowest risk experiment you can take to learn more about whether this is the right next phase for you? Um, and then you run that experiment. And then you either learn that this is probably a good direction to be going in, or you learn that it isn't. And if you learn that it is, you run the next lowest cost, low risk experiment. And you keep going until you get somewhere or you have to rewind to the last time it works. And that's kind of how I ran my career change. It meant that I ended up, you know, I kind of got after a while to something to do with people. Um, and then, but I got as far as a two-term counseling training. I'd already written off coaching. I got as far as a two-term counseling training before I realized it was a gutting moment, really, that it, after all that time and some money invested, that it wasn't the right thing. I had to rewind to, and then I, in the end, found a different coaching training, which felt much more right for me and if we think about the 12 minute writing again that's the same kind of thing it's like how can we make it a low risk low cost experiment from which we learn which we have an intuition is on the right path but if it's not on the right path that's okay we can stop at that point so there's there's some ideas for that kind of more nebulous thing like a career change that makes a lot of sense and even if it's just I'm going to spend 12 minutes a week writing some emails to people to arrange to meet them for a coffee and a chat to find out about stuff that would be massively valuable right yeah yeah and I mean if you think about low cost low risk experiments like early on in that in whatever career change you're doing could be finding the friendly person who already does that and one of the things I learned I couldn't believe some of the people that said yes although I only tried it in fact I had 100% record I tried it with two people like really successful people you know, if you email them and say, I'm, I, I'm thinking of changing my life, I really admire what you do. Do you have time to talk to me about it? Like most people who have the time will say yes to that because most people have been in a, in a situation like that. And, and, and look, I guess the other piece with the career change that, that's really worth saying, the phases of the creative process that are in the 12 Minute Method series, the first book is about starting, the second is about keeping going. The third one is about creating the conditions for great work. And the fourth is about sharing your work. When I was really getting into keeping going, I really noticed that when you're not making a start on something, it's not a neutral act when it's something you want to do. So if you've got this idea that you want to make the change in your career, like there's this kind of creative hell buildup of like, I wish I'd done that thing already. Or like, why haven't I done anything? The kind of blaming that can sometimes happen. So every day that you do a tiny bit of something, it's not just that you've done the tiny bit, but you, you have a day where you don't add to that feeling of, I wish I'd started this already. So it's just that, again, that, that really important value, like you said, if, if it's something like changing career, even just setting aside that 12 minutes, 15 minutes, half an hour, but, but mostly less amount of time than you think it'll take. And quite fun if it's not a round number, because then you know, remember how arbitrary the amount of time you're setting aside for something is. Like 12 minutes a week to send a few emails, at least you've done something about that this week. And over time, if you keep doing that on something, 
like the career change or learning about where you might go next in your in your work like over time that will compound i really think one of the things that i've learned again when i was working on the keep going book is worth having something it doesn't really matter what it is anything that you decide to do on a regular basis and then you keep doing because once you've got that that practice idea that we talked about earlier and you know you can keep going with something 12 minutes a week every week say What's possible for me as a person feels really different. Like I've got nothing else. I mean, kind of exercise, but I've really got nothing else that I set out to have as a practice and then have kept going for six years. But and once you've kept it going for six years, I basically know I can keep it going forever. And if I know about myself that I can keep practicing something once a week, even for 12 minutes forever, then in time, getting better at things is a completely different picture. If I decided I wanted to get better at ice skating, injuries aside, it feels like a real choice in my life now. Whereas before it used to feel like well, I could never be good at ice skating. And now I know in some ways it's just a matter of time and have I got the patience to do it. So that's why I think building that capacity in yourself, the capacity to choose to do something mm-hmm. and to keep it going, even, and it doesn't really matter how small that thing is, as long as you really commit to doing it. And on the weeks when you miss it, you don't then give up forever, right? You then go like, okay, I missed it last week. Am I going to do it this week? Yes. Mm-hmm. Then, then things really change. I like that. It is such a mindset shift, isn't it? So I've lost count of the amount of people that have said to me, oh, wow, it's so amazing. You can ice skate. I could never do that. And my reply is, of course you could. Literally, you start in level zero or level one where you are holding onto the side. And after a week, you'll be only holding onto the side occasionally. And then after two, you know, of course you can. You literally can build it up. So it's very confidence inspiring, isn't it? You know, same with musical instruments, same with singing, same with pretty much anything. Absolutely right. But I can imagine as I'm talking to you, lots of people sitting there going, yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. So I'd love to know what yes, buts you get from people. The first one that's occurring to me is I know that some people will literally be saying yes but I don't have 12 minutes a week people used to miss here the, the 12 minute method as 12 minutes a day mm-hmm. and I was really I'm really 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 glad that in September 2016 when I decided to go when I decided to make it a practice that I made it a weekly practice not a daily practice mm-hmm. um, because if it had been a daily practice I would have failed to keep it going for six years for sure how do you make the thing sustainable is like a really key part of it. And the I don't have 12 minutes a week thing, person, I mean, I would tell them a harsh truth, which is that they absolutely do. And it's only their choices. Yeah, that, that, they don't that want to, they don't. right? Yeah. Right. If they don't, speech marks have time to make 12 minutes a week, then they don't want the thing enough or they're, or they're yeah. kidding themselves. At some level, time management isn't really a thing. A big part of it is choice management. And, you know, we always have a choice what we're doing on some level. And every time we say yes to something, we're saying no to something else. If you don't want to make the 12 minutes, then, you know, you don't want to. And that's okay. Like, I don't think you have to do that. But let's not pretend you don't have the 12 minutes a week. Like a day, I think that's reasonable. But a week, everyone really can make that 12 minutes. And that is what's so compelling about your 12 minute method is because it just gets rid of that. I don't have time. Because that, literally, if you don't have 12 minutes, then then literally you've not got time to feed yourself, eat or anything. Like, wh- where are you and what you're doing? Right. Yeah. And the other yes buts, I guess, that mostly come, like, I guess on, a, on one level, for me, they're often different versions of that same thing. Like, they're different excuses more than reasons to not do the thing. And that makes total sense because doing new things 
changing ourselves is a scary, vulnerable thing to do. And it's, it's human, incredibly natural to avoid that. And so therefore, the thing that we often need to do is to make that 12 minute thing in the planning and the design of it as frictionless as possible. So if the, if the 12 minute thing is email some people about the potential career change you want to do, we need to make sure that the computer can be on. We're not getting distracted in those times. So it's like often the yes buts, they become about creating the conditions for the practice to work. I remember having a conversation with a family member who wanted to take up running and um, they used to do lots of running, but they weren't. And it actually turned out they needed new trainers. <laughs> that was the friction. And once the trainers had come, there was no excuse. And actually they wanted to do it. So it was fine. So it's amazing that the little things that do put us off. I've been wanting re- to record something with some friends, but I can't find the charger for a particular microphone thing. And I'm like, oh, that's so annoying. Literally the other day, it took me 30 seconds on Amazon to order this charger. It's crazy, isn't it? So uh, <laughs> I have like a a little argument with myself quite often about the, the order that the books that I released should have come out. They came out with the third one being create the conditions for great work which if you want to do great work is an important thing to think about but the most important three conditions for great work are that you start it that you keep going and then at some point you share it Mm. and many many pieces of great work have been wrecked on the rocks of creating the perfect conditions so we have to be really careful with that I, i really know that feeling of like i just can't get the technology to work so therefore i'm gonna not do it and i'm building up all this frustration and often these things you know, it's like we do just need to accept that the thing won't quite be perfect or that solve the problem in a different way um, and remind ourselves that we don't we don't need the conditions to be as perfect as we think. We don't need to be as ready as we think. We don't need to be as confident as we think, because like you say, that comes after. We don't need the permission that we think we need. We just need to start. We're often we're waiting for like inspiration to start. And the truth is that it it, it, it comes when we start. It's mm-hmm. always there. But it's when you just start doing the thing that the that the idea sometimes comes. There's all kinds of reasons that people wait, but actually the, you know, setting the timer. Time is good for it because it stops you messing around as well, stops you like making excuses if a time is going. I think the use of the timer is a kind of again underrated tool. Yeah. I use it in lots of ways, but that's a good way to get yourself going. If you've got 12 minutes, it's gonna beep. You know that you're free after the 12 minutes, you don't have to do it anymore, whatever this thing is that you're finding difficult. Sometimes you'll carry on anyway. And um yeah, and it stops you faffing around so much as well sometimes. Yeah, and I was recording a podcast the other day about meetings, which may or may not have come out by the time this, this one comes out. But uh, Carrie was saying, yeah, time is absolutely brilliant for making decisions. Creative constraints, put a timer on it. Like almost the right. shorter, the better. You've got to ah, suddenly, suddenly decide. I think one thing that you said earlier it, it really struck me, and that was when you talk about starting your podcast and doing your podcast and the fact that you've, you've put your goals there as, as learning for yourself and I think that's really really wise because if you were to start a podcast with the goal of being as big as Tim Ferriss for example you know the biggest podcast world or even being as big as some other ones that are right up there in the charts you're never going to start it because that is really daunting and, and it's likely that you're just not going to meet that goal so you have to have I guess the goal not being something too external right not being too much about external success or validation otherwise then that does just become a bit scary and that the possibility for failure which we all hate it is higher right but if you can't fail if literally I want to do this because I will learn as I go along 
I don't think it's inherently bad for somebody to set out to be massive. If that's what you want, like acknowledge that goal and do it. But when I'm working with clients, I'm always looking like, how do we make the work we can do within our control? Mm. Now, so it's like, if we were going to have a big goal, like I want to be as big as Tim Ferriss, it's like, well, this year, you know, we don't know if you can do that. Mm. What would you have to do so that at the end of the year, you'll feel at peace with yourself about having done the work that you can do towards that goal? So I think that's that's one of the ways to think about that. But then I think for me personally, those external goals, they get overwhelming and they don't really serve me. Um, and so to have a definition of success, which is, if you like, yeah, beyond the kind of conventional idea of success is really important for me to help me get going. And there's a one surefire way of never having a podcast that's as big as Tim Ferriss. And that's not to start the podcast, right? It's like, we don't know if you can have a, a podcast as big as Ferriss. But we know for sure you can't if you don't start. So the first thing is do whatever it takes to start. And for me, separating from the external things, making it something that is fun and somewhere that I will have a great time doing it if only if no one listens, like that's the first thing yeah. to do. Because I want to make sure it gets made. Yeah. I think it was Elizabeth Gilbert. I was listening to her on a podcast. She's the writer of Eat, Pray, Love and, and several other absolutely amazing books. She was saying that she had this pact with herself and her writing that she would never expect her writing to pay for her life, that she was always going to have the writing of something she absolutely adored doing. And I mean, she now obviously is a very famous published author and it is paying for her life, but there was never that expectation. So she could always do it for the love of it. And I think sometimes, and I've noticed this particularly with doctors, we do want to be absolutely brilliant at everything. So, you know, if we don't think we're going to be world-class, we're not going to start it. We just need to get out of that mindset and just start doing it. Stuff for the love of it as well. Yeah. Yeah. I love Liz Gilbert. Like her book, Big Magic mm. is along the lines of lots of what we've been talking about in this conversation. She has a great bit in there about that same idea about day jobs, getting a bad rap. Mm. Like who are we to put like the thing we love, the pressure of paying our rent and, and, and that kind of thing. That's where, where medics often have an advantage because it is possible to, to work um, and do different sessions and stuff and do other stuff as well and, and have a reasonable income in order to do that. So we've got a massive advantage there, which is really good. But we, we talked for ages, Robbie, we're nearly out of time. Um, if I was to ask you for your top three tips in all of this, what would they be? I know you've done episodes before about urgency and importance. I think in some ways we can look at the 12 minute method as, as a way of making sure that you spend some time in a week on the important but not urgent. Yeah. So it's like the top tip would be build some time, even just 12 minutes to work on something that is really important to you, but probably isn't the thing that people are emailing and calling you about first thing in the morning or, or, or not banging on your office door about. I think the second we've talked about really would be choose something and, and make uh, a repeatable habit out of. Uh, now, I think that creative things are quite a good thing to do that with because they invite us to have ideas, they invite us to practice different things in us. Um, but but it doesn't have to be that, but choose something. Because once you know, you can stick to something and make it as easy as possible to stick to. That can have a really big impact on, on us. And then the last one is just start things, you know, isn't it? That's the thing, really. It's yeah. like, remember that, that it'll never be perfect and start that thing that you've been meaning to do for a long time. Just start it this week, find a little way. Just do it. Know. JFDI, as we say in my house. Exactly. 
Marvellous. Oh, Robbie, it's been wonderful talking to you. If people want to find your books, where can they get hold of them and find out more about your work? Yeah, so I'm at robbieswale.com. Um, I'm quite easily Googleable. Uh, you can find me there. Um, find me on most of the social media because of, because my blog was on LinkedIn or is on LinkedIn. The books are on Amazon, but they're also if you're in the UK on Waterstones and Blackwell's websites, that kind of place. Brilliant. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. We'd we'll, we'll love to get you back at some point and talk a little bit more about all this sort of stuff. Yeah, it's been a total pleasure, Rachel. Time's flown by. Uh, yeah, I'd love to come back. Thanks so much. Speak soon. Bye. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, we provide a self-coaching CPD workbook for every episode. You can sign up for it via the link in the show notes. And if this episode was helpful, then please share it with a friend. Get in touch with any comments or suggestions at hello at youarenotafrog.com. I love to hear from you. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate it and leave a review wherever you're listening. It really helps. Bye for now. <laughs>